All right, the committee will come to order. Uh, today's hearing is to review the resources, priorities, and programs in fiscal year 2016 of the State Department budget request, uh, focused on uh, here in our work in the Western Hemisphere, as, as well as transnational crime, civilian security, <laughs> democracy, human rights, and global women's issues. Uh, our witnesses today from the administration are the Honorable Cath Catherine Russell, the ambassador at large for global women's issues, Dr. John Feely, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, the Bureau for Western Hemisphere Affairs, and Ms. Virginia Bennett, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. And the hearing is going to focus on a review of resources, priorities, and programs in fiscal year 2016 budget request in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs, and the Office of Global Women's Issues. I want to thank all of you for being a part of this today. These are important issues for the Department of State and for America's role in the world. Just as ensuring that our military is adequately funded to deter our enemies, the international affairs budget, of which the State Department budget is just one component, is an essential element of our national security. The programs we will review today help us advance U.S. national security interests in key regions and help us ensure that our foreign policy reflects our values. I want to take the opportunity to briefly review some of the challenges facing us in the Western Hemisphere as well as across the globe. In Central America, the countries of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, which are collectively known as the Northern Triangle countries, have been mired in economic stagnation, rocked by violent crime brought on by the proliferation of narco-traffickers, and hobbled by entrenched corruption that inhibits economic growth and safety. I am cautiously optimistic about the desire of these countries to move themselves forward and the attention that the administration is now giving to this particular region. While there cannot be a blank check and no accountability, Central American governments must look within and stamp out corruption to restore public confidence in public institutions. In Colombia, I remain supportive of the government of Colombia and the Colombian people's right to seek what is in their best interest with regards to the ongoing peace talks with the FARC. However, the FARC's most recent deadly attack violated a ceasefire that had been in place since December and resulted in the death of 10 soldiers. This is not the first time that the FARC has violated a ceasefire agreement, and the attack highlighted how deadly FARC continues to be. Our assistance to Colombia has been instrumental to the success in bringing the FARC to the negotiating table. The U.S. and Colombia must make sure that the FARC knows that they have been defeated on the battlefield. In Haiti, the suspension on October 26th of the October 26th elections last year were very startling, and the announcement of the president that he would rule by decree was even more disturbing. History unfor Haiti, unfortunately, has a history of turbulent elections, and the recent suppression of political protesters cannot continue. We are hopeful that the upcoming August election will go forward as planned, and that a new democratically elected government will be installed that will be responsive to the people of Haiti. In Cuba, despite all the efforts by the Obama administration to fast-track and reestablish relations with that government, the Castro dictatorship has used this opportunity to ridicule and attack American interests. The Cuban government has made no concessions, nor attempts to open a society that has been in darkness for 55 years. A darkness, make no mistake, that has been inflicted by the Castro brothers due to their ineffective and failed ideology. In fact, since December 17th, the regime has increased its repression and beatings of dissidents and has shown every intent of making U.S. overtures a one-sided deal. In particular, the consistent attacks on the ladies of white show this brutal regime's true nature. 
In Venezuela, we continue to be concerned with the increasing authoritarian rule of Nicolas Maduro over Venezuela. The recent announced nationalization of privately owned commercial companies through the use of his decree powers is an affront to a free society. He also continues to lash out at the United States as the cause of Venezuela's problems, never acknowledging that he is the one who has imposed restrictions on currency, travel, and trade. The Venezuelan people deserve better. In Argentina, we continue to, to mourn the death of Argentine Special Prosecutor Alberto Nisman, a courageous man who relentlessly pursued those who were responsible for the bombing of the Argentine-Israelite Mutual Association in Buenos Aires on July 18, 1994, that killed 85 people and wounded more than 300. I'm concerned with the slow pace of the investigation into his death, and with that in mind, I introduced a resolution today regarding his courageous work and life and a call for swift and transparent investigation into his tragic death. Nicaragua continues to reestablish its close ties with Russia, rekindling memories of Soviet presence in Central America during the 80s, new military cooperation agreements between Vladimir Putin and Daniel Ortega serves as a further expansion of Russian reach into the hemisphere. Mexico, which we join today in celebrating its army's defeat of the French army on Cinco de Mayo, continues to be a strong partner of the United States, both economically through trade and security. I continue, of course, to be concerned about the violence that proliferates across the country, driven by drug cartels that seek to terrorize communities they operate in. I'm particularly concerned about the massacre of 43 students in the city of Iguala. On democracy and human rights, we are seeing a deterioration of democracy and human rights across the globe. In particular, freedom of press and freedom of religion is being challenged in every corner of the globe. In 2015, Freedom House Freedom of the World Report identified that global press freedom declined in 2014 to its lowest point in more than 10 years. A 2013 Pew Research study found that Christians were being harassed either by government or social groups in 102 of 198 countries included in the study. There are also serious questions about whether the U.S. government is structured adequately to make human rights and democracy a priority of foreign policy. And women and girls face numerous challenges across the globe, from China's one-child policy, which places a preference on boys over girls, to Saudi Arabia, where the state of women's rights is so abysmal they're not even allowed to drive. Gender-based violence cuts across ethnicity, race, class, religion, educational level, and international borders. An estimated one in three women worldwide has been beaten, coerced into sex, or experienced some other form of abuse in their lifetime. While these lists of challenges seem daunting, the U.S. government is dedicated to improving the status of democracy, human rights, and women's rights. Today we are exploring how we can best dedicate our resources to improve ongoing U.S. efforts. With that, I recognize the ranking member, Senator Boxer. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank you for holding this hearing, and I want to extend a warm welcome to our distinguished witnesses. Today's hearing is part of a series of subcommittee hearings to examine in more detail the State Department's strategic and budgetary priorities for fiscal year 2016. These hearings will help inform the committee's efforts to craft a State Department authorization bill, which is a top priority for our new chairman. Our subcommittee has jurisdiction over a range of critical matters relating to U.S. foreign policy and national security, including U.S. relations with countries of the Western Hemisphere, as well as a global responsibility for democracy, 
human rights and women's issues. And I just want to call out uh, for praise Senator Kerry when I went to him with this notion that we add this uh, part, uh, this very important part to our subcommittee, human rights, democracy, and women's issues. He said yes, and, and Republicans supported it as well. Very grateful that it stays with this subcommittee. The State Department's budget request seeks to implement key policies and strategies in each of these areas. I strongly support the administration's historic $1 billion request for a U.S. strategy for engagement in Central America. This funding will support a government-wide approach to promote regional prosperity and economic opportunity, address high levels of violence and insecurity, and strengthen democratic institutions. I also support the administration's efforts to deepen U.S. engagement in the region, including its decision to chart a new path forward in U.S.-Cuban relations. And I know we're sharply divided on that uh, on this committee, but, but that's, that's healthy disagreement. Um, in addition, I appreciate the administration's strong commitment to promoting women's rights, protecting women's security, and ensuring their full and meaningful participation in all areas of public life. The budget request also includes funding for programs that combat gender-based violence that our chairman alluded to, and for continued implementation of the U.S. strategy to prevent and respond to gender-based violence globally. It's also critical that the U.S. continue to lead the world in advancing democracy and human rights worldwide. Today, sadly, we continue to see widespread human rights violations and threats to fundamental freedoms in countries from China to Russia to Uganda to Venezuela. So I support funding for programs that support human rights defenders and civil society organizations that promote religious freedom and strengthen accountability and the rule of law. It seems to me, if we're gonna wrap our arms around the distress in the world, I think this subcommittee is a good place to start because of our broad jurisdiction on these issues, and I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for this opportunity. Thank you, Senator. And now we're going to begin with Ambassador Russell. Welcome to the committee. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Boxer, and distinguished members of the committee. Thank you very much for inviting me to testify today. We at the Department of State believe that advancing the status of women and girls worldwide is not only the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. Study after study demonstrates that countries are more stable, peaceful, and prosperous when women are healthy, educated, and able to fully participate in their economies and their societies. As the Ambassador at Large for Global Women's Issues, it's my job to develop and help implement policies and initiatives that promote gender equality and advance the status of girls and women around the world. My office is focused on both policy and diplomacy efforts. We implement a handful of targeted programs to strategically advance our objectives. We share best practices for promoting gender issues within the State Department, and we coordinate with USAID and other U.S. government agencies, as well as other governments, international institutions, and NGOs. I'd like to begin today by providing you with an overview of my office's three priority areas, and I'll then outline how we use our resources to support these objectives. Our first priority is to prevent and respond to gender-based violence, both in conflict and in peacetime. As you said, Chairman Rubio, more than one in three women around the world faces sexual or physical violence in her lifetime. That's why I make sure that addressing gender-based violence is the, on the agenda of every trip that I take. 
For example, I've met with survivors of acid attacks in Pakistan. I've met with the government of Bangladesh to encourage them to uphold 18 as the legal age of marriage for girls. I've met with Afghan President Ghani to discuss the recent mob murder of a 27-year-old woman named Fakunda. And we continue to push the Afghan government to fully implement the Elimination on the Violence Against Women Act. Our second priority is to advance women's full participation in all aspects of society. In the places where decisions are made, women are vastly underrepresented. From politics to peace negotiations, women often don't have a seat at the table. We're working very hard to change that. We also work to expand women's economic participation. One of the most effective ways to empower women is to facilitate greater economic independence. Women's economic opportunities have ripple effects for their families, communities, and countries. Women spend the majority of their earnings on food, schooling, and immunizations that help secure their children's futures. And when more women work, when the gap between women and men in the workforce narrows, economies benefit as well. Research has shown that the narrowing gap between male and female employment accounted for a quarter of Europe's annual GDP growth over the past two decades. Our final priority is addressing the needs of adolescent girls. In too many parts of the world, adolescence is the most precarious time for girls. Many are at risk of early enforced marriage. In fact, one in three girls in the developing world is married by the time she is 18 years old. Millions of girls live in conflict settings that raise the risks of gender-based violence and further disrupt already perilous situations. And far too many girls have the education, far too few girls have the education they need to participate fully in the economy. Girls' attendance in formal schooling during adolescence is also correlated with later marriage, later childbearing, lower rates of HIV AIDS, fewer hours of domestic and labor work, and greater gender equality. That's why through the Let Girls Learn initiative, a government-wide effort recently launched by the President and First Lady, we're working to make the case that every girl deserves a chance to complete her education, especially secondary education. These are the priorities we're focused on. I'd like to talk very briefly about how we use our resources and programs to advance gender equality. As I mentioned, my role is a strategic combination of policy and diplomacy. The majority of programmatic activities related to gender are carried out by state and USAID embassies and missions around the world, as well as some of our bureaus here in Washington. My office helps advance these issues through our own targeted programming. In many instances, we use our resources to fill gaps and test innovative strategic ways to address challenges related to women and girls. I'm committed to ensuring that our funds are spent on programs that have real impact and that can serve as models for other work. That's why we've implemented procedures to carry out rigorous monitoring and evaluation of the projects we fund. One thing we have learned is that it's difficult to see change without comprehensively addressing the many challenges that women and girls face. For example, it's one thing to provide services to survivors of domestic violence, but to truly, produce rate, to re truly reduce rates of gender-based violence, we must also focus on prevention and empowerment. And for us to succeed in achieving full gender equality, we need everyone, diplomats, government practitioners, civil society, men and women, to play a role. The same concept applies to U.S. foreign policy. Each of the global challenges we face include and involve women. We cannot effectively counter violent extremist groups without engaging women. We cannot create stable and prosperous societies without including women. We cannot build stronger economies without making sure that girls go to school. That's why across every bureau and every embassy, we need to make every effort to advance the status and address the needs of women and girls. Your leadership and support are critical to the success of our efforts, and I thank you very much for having me here today and for supporting our work. Thank you very much. Uh, Secretary Feely, welcome to the committee. Mr. Chairman, 
Ranking Member Boxer, distinguished members of the subcommittee, thank you very much for the opportunity to testify here today. Mr. Chairman, the Western Hemisphere is a top priority for the United States because important national interests are at stake. I'm pleased to report that almost every available metric supports the view that the United States remains an influential actor and a vital partner in this region. The Obama administration's policy aims to forge equal partnerships with the countries of the Americas to advance our shared values and our common interests. And that is essential for the American people. It links families. It creates jobs. It promotes our common democratic values. And it increasingly enables us to work together on important regional and global issues, such as climate change, combating transnational criminal organizations, and promoting a prosperity agenda that begins here at home. Our budget request reflects the high level of importance that this administration gives to the Western Hemisphere. The request, as you know, is $1.99 billion, which represents a 34.7% increase from fiscal year 14. Just over half of the total request supports the U.S. strategic engagement for Central America, a new whole-of-government approach to enhance prosperity, governance, and security in Central America. Last summer's spike in the migration of unaccompanied children and women was a clear signal that serious long-standing challenges in Central America remain and in some instances, frankly, are worsening. The administration is committed to working with Congress to develop a new approach to Central America. Our assistance request for Central America includes new investments, as I said, for prosperity and governance consistent with our strategy in, while maintaining and strengthening our current focus on security. These funds are necessary to adequately address the complex web of factors that motivate many Central Americans, as I said, including women and unaccompanied children, to embark on a dangerous and undocumented migration to the United States. As the Vice President and President have stressed, we must cooperate with our Northern Triangle partners to create the opportunities that will keep Central Americans at home and contributing to the creation of a safe, secure, prosperous, and middle-class region. While the level of support represents a significant increase from previous years, we believe that the political will does exist in the region to merit this renewed investment in Central America's security and prosperity. We realize this is an important task and we don't take it lightly. We in the executive branch must move quickly to demonstrate results and hold ourselves accountable. That means that we will continue to consult closely with all of you and your staff on this committee and your colleagues elsewhere in the House and in the Senate. We will evaluate our programs. We will craft the most, assistant, uh, the most effective assistance package. Beyond Central America, we must maintain investments in priority programs that are working. This past summer, Mexico was a key partner in the effort to stem the flow of migration to the United States, and it has a strong record of capturing important drug traffickers. Therefore, our request to continue the support for the Merida Initiative is of paramount interest to us. We must continue to support Mexico's efforts to support and strengthen the rule of law, combat corruption, build resilient communities, and protect human rights. In Colombia, as you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, a historic peace process poses the best chance yet of bringing an end to Latin America's longest-running conflict. Our request supports Colombia in that effort to strengthen their law enforcement and counter-narcotics activities to promote human rights effectively to look at women in conflict in the conflictive zones, to work on economic development, and to work on social inclusion. All of this will be crucial for a lasting 
and just peace. In the Caribbean, our request includes $241 million for Haiti and $53 million for the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative, both of which are focused on important national and administration priorities. As you may know, Peru is now the world's largest producer of cocaine, and the government will need our help to change this trajectory. Our request maintains important support for freedom of the press, human rights, and democracy efforts in the hemisphere, including in Cuba, Venezuela, Ecuador, and Nicaragua. And we will also continue to support a revitalized and a reinvigorated organization of American states. We are well aware that there are many challenges, but we are even more convinced that there are many opportunities for the American people. I look forward to this engagement, I look forward to this session, and I thank you again for the opportunity to appear before you. Thank you for being here today. Secretary Bennett. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Boxer, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to discuss the work we do in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor to support freedom in closed societies and advance human rights and democracy around the globe. Your commitment to these vital issues is well known and much appreciated. Assistant Secretary Malinowski regrets he cannot be here today. He's in Vietnam leading our bilateral human rights dialogue. Um, I am personally delighted, if I might say, about his travel because it means my first opportunity to offer testimony, and it's a true privilege to participate in the dialogue that's the very foundation of U.S. governance, and I thank you for that opportunity. Globally, space for civil society is shrinking. Restrictions and far more sinister acts to repress media are on the rise. Religious intolerance is captured through brutal imagery, and U.S. support for the organizations and individuals working to advance democratic freedom, human, and labor rights is making a difference in people's lives across the globe. We are deeply appreciative that DRL's advocacy work has long enjoyed strong bipartisan support from Congress. DRL's total budget request is $89 million, sort of dwarfed by WHA's. That request includes $60 million for the Human Rights and Democracy Fund, or HRDF, and $29 million for Diplomatic and Consular Programs, or DNCP. DNCP funds staff salaries, travel, and the like, as well as production of our annual human rights and international religious freedom reports. DRL also implements approximately $70 million of foreign assistance funding per year in Economic Support Funds, or ESF. That funding is transferred to us from the department's regional bureaus, and so is not included in our own budget request. So what do we do with these precious resources? 90% of our work globally is in closed or closing societies, where gross human rights abuses can occur unchecked, and activists can be attacked and repressed with impunity. We seek to widen political space in struggling or nascent democracies and in countries with authoritarian regimes, including those where the United States has no diplomatic presence. DRL has many years of experience helping brave activists who target rights abuses and promote democratic principles in these environments. Our programs are notified to Congress and overt, um, but we do take protection of our implementing partners very seriously. Um, I'd be happy to provide this committee or my colleagues with a private briefing at a later date about more details of some of what these programs entail. But here, let me highlight some examples of what makes our programming in general terms quite unique. First, the agility with which we can respond. Last year, we launched a new NGO consortium for truth, reconciliation, and justice. When mass graves were discovered in eastern Ukraine just a couple of weeks after that, 
we were poised to deploy experts to advise the government of Ukraine and local civil society on tracking missing persons, identification of individual remains, and preserving forensic information. DRL is also innovative. Our Digital Defenders Partnership has provided 350 civil society organizations with digital security assistance, and approximately 7 million people have benefited from software or hardware the partnership has made available. We've also used technology solutions to improve physical security. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, for example, an SMS-based system now permits villagers to alert UN or DRC protection forces of impending attack. This system has thwarted some three dozen rebel attacks on villages which are home to approximately 150,000 people. Many of our programs are tailored in their support of those who are targeted, whether women, religious and ethnic minorities, indigenous populations, or the LGBT community. Our gender-based violence fund just recently assisted 50 Yazidi women and girls who had escaped the brutality of ISIL captivity. We also leverage like-minded support to stretch money. Since establishing the Global Equality Fund to advance the rights of LGBT persons, we have been joined by 10 other governments and nine private entities. Their contributions have grown our $2 million initial investment into $20 million of programs in more than 50 countries, and we're proud of that. Mr. Chairman, as the national security strategy in 2015 affirms, America is uniquely situated and routinely expected to support peaceful democratic change. DRL stands ready to do our part. We must continue to seek the release of activists, continue to support civil society and press governments to halt arbitrary detention, to uphold freedom of expression. We must continue to seize opportunities to make a difference in democracies under threat and in countries in transition. Thank you again for holding this hearing, Mr. Chairman, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you all for being here. We'll enter the questions now. Let me, I'll begin with Ambassador Russell. Earlier this year, I introduced the Girls Count Act with uh, Senator Shaheen, which promotes programs that will assist with birth registration of both girls and boys. A nationally recognized proof of birth system is important to, de to determining a child's citizenship, their nationality, their place of birth, et cetera. The lack of that documentation, of course, can prevent girls and women from officially participating and benefiting from formal economic, legal, and political sectors in their country. I was hoping you could briefly describe to us, well, I guess not briefly, however long it takes, uh, the current barriers that girls face around the world in receiving a birth certificate, what you're doing, what we do about that, and, and how uh, the Girls Act count could supplement your current work. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you very much for introducing that legislation. It's interesting when I travel, I meet so many girls. It's an issue that I wasn't as aware of before I started this job as I probably uh, should have been and certainly am now, but one of the consequences of this is that girls, I mean, it, it's just to the, to the name of your bill, they just aren't counted. They aren't considered in any equations, and it makes it very difficult for them to get to school. It makes it difficult for them as they get older. Sometimes they don't, they don't have any paper that supports who they are, what their identities are, so they can't get loans to start jobs. I met some women who run a little taxi cab service in India, and they talked about how so many of the young, they, they take very poor women and they get them trained to drive tax, taxi cabs. And it's important because in India, there's a lot of um, nervousness about on the part of women about using public transportation. So they have these women-only taxi cabs. But how some of these very poor women never have any, any paper to, 
sort of establish who they are. So they can't go to a bank, they can't get a driver's license. So it's a problem that follows them throughout their lives. And I think from our perspective, uh, the efforts to change that are critically important. And it also goes to the another issue that I know you care about, which is trafficking, which is again, it makes them very much more vulnerable to things like that when they don't have any way to establish their identity. So we are definitely supportive of the notion and very um, anxious to work with you on that bill. On a, a, on a follow-up note, in 2011, the administration announced uh, its National Action Plan for Women, Peace, and Security. How would you assess the implementation of this plan? And, um, and in particular, are we assisting with including women in these high-level negotiations? Well, we're certainly trying. It's a, it's a priority for us. And um, it is, I think, um, it's not always easy, as you can imagine, because what happens in these conflicts is that the people who are negotiating the peace are typically combatants, and they're typically not women. Um, and what we do, USAID does a great deal of this. We are supportive of the efforts as well. We do training for women so that once we get them to these tables, they know how to negotiate. They're more effective in these roles. Um, and we've been engaged in this. We're happy to see that there are women in the Columbia uh, in, uh, negotiations. We're happy that we believe uh, the early reports are in Afghanistan. We've had three women um, on that sort of early process negotiation between the Afghans and the, and the Taliban. So we, I think that countries are starting to recognize that women have a stake in the future of their country, so they should be involved in the discussions about how the country's gonna move out of conflict. But I can't tell you that it's an easy battle. It's a constant, it's something that we're constantly working on and trying to engage on the diplomatic side. Uh, Secretary Bennett, I wanted to talk to you about religious freedom. It's not just an American ideal, it's a human one, and protecting these freedoms around the world should be a top priority of our foreign policy agenda. What progress has DRL made in, in both protecting and advancing religious freedom around the world? Sorry, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, you know, I think that I first would like to say that from the perspective of the administration, and I think all of us who are really um, very privileged to work on these issues, religious freedom is a top priority. Um, the threat that religious minorities, I think, are currently experiencing is of extraordinary proportion, whether it's Christian populations in the Middle East, whether it is, you know, it, it really, it, whatever stripe of religious minority is out there, it's under complete pressure and threat. Um, as to what progress we are making in terms of protecting individuals, um, it's hard to measure, very honestly. We are, we have certain types of programs. We have, um, you know, one protecting belief fund, for example, which enables us to provide real-time, very targeted assistance to individuals who have come under attack to provide protection or exit capacity for them to get them and their families to someplace safer. So that is obviously on a very micro level. Um, but I'd also like to take a step back and talk just a little more on kind of the strategic framework where our Ambassador-at-Large for Religious Freedom, David Saperstein, and Assistant Secretary Malinowski have joined forces, I think, very effectively to go out and engage with governments, for example, on a recent trip to Iraq, about the importance of promoting tolerance. Um, and they have, they will continue to, to do so, I think, in a wide number of the global communities with which we're engaged. 
You would agree that the obviously all religious intolerance is, is abhorrent. Uh, I want to focus in particular, however, on the plight of ancient Christian communities in the Middle East, uh, communities that existed and still do to some extent in Syria, in Iraq, um, in Lebanon, and in other parts of the Middle East. Would you agree that they face a challenge today, unlike anything we've seen in recent history in terms of the violence that they've now been exposed to, whether it's the beheadings just recently that we saw once again in North Africa, or just the destruction of entire villages, churches, and otherwise, the, the, we've reached a crisis point. And, and Zach, when it, will that be a priority of our foreign policy in that region as we focus on all of the atrocities that are occurring? But in particular, this is an aspect I don't hear pointed to enough. Is that a priority? And if so, you know, what, what have we done or what expressions have been made over the last few months to include that in our conversations as we view those issues in that region? Sadly, we do agree that that is a priority. I mean, the level of threat that these communities are experiencing is remarkably intense. Um, we will continue to engage with local communities um, to try to create, again, as I said, sort of the promotion of tolerance space and also with the relevant governments in that region to articulate the importance of preserving these ancient cultures. I have a flashing light, so I think that means I stop. No, yeah, sorry. We, we, yeah, there's a little leeway there. Keep going, that's okay. Sorry, I'm new to this, as I said. I understand. Um, so, <laughs> the, um, but for our, you know, for our purposes, I think that we look at this in a couple of different ways, both in terms of longer term and the work of decades, not days, in trying to create and foster improved environments in the communities and the importance of tolerance. And then we look at it also on a very near-term basis. And that includes engaging with, you know, in dialogue with religious leaders in, um, in all communities about how to address the very real systemic threat. One of the... Um, you know, one of the unusual experiences I think that our Office of International Religious Freedom has had over the past six to eight to nine months has been the very effective relationship that we have crafted with our colleagues in the interagency in terms of actually defending communities under threat. Um, while this has been less focused on the Christian community in particular and more on the Yazidi community because of the nature of some of the threats that we have seen, we really do believe that we're making some progress in this regard. Thank you. Senator Boxer. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ms. Bennett, I wanted to pick up on the Yazidi issue um, because my understanding is that the Gender-Based Violence Emergency Response and Protection Initiative has supported nearly 50 Yazidi women and girls who have escaped ISIL. What, uh, could you define what that support has been? And in general, what that support has been, um, well, take a step back. This is a partnership that we established with Vital Voices and the Avon Foundation. Um, the nature of the support has been varied with the individual, but it is um, you know, post-trauma uh, counseling, working within the community to find a new place for individuals to reside, to be reintegrated into communities. It is to provide to them some measure of 
um, some measure of inclusion in the communities in which they are, and in some cases actually support to be removed and to relocate someplace. So it actually has been very dependent on mm -hmm. the particular situation of the individual. Uh, now, do you, um, does your current funding level allow you to provide assistance to meet the needs of vulnerable women survivors in Iraq and Syria from the, as you help them get over gender-based violence, or is your budget limiting your activities to just your cities? There is always more, I would say, to be done, but our, um, because our funding is so flexible in its nature, mm -hmm. the way that we fund in general is much more uh, on a compressed timeline than that of sort of longer term, bigger development assistance projects. And so that enables us to be very responsive and to shift resources where they are needed, when they are needed. Well, that's good. Um, I want to talk to Ambassador Russell. Last month, Sen Rubio and I wrote to the Chinese ambassador to the United States urging the Chinese government release five women rights advocates who were detained for planning to raise public awareness about sexual harassment in conjunction with International Women's Day. After spending more than a month in detention, the five women were conditionally released. However, according to a Reuters story, one of the women was verbally attacked during an eight-hour interrogation by the Chinese police less than two weeks after her release. Can you confirm that? Is, and, and this is unacceptable if true. How can the U.S. increase pressure on China to uphold its domestic and international commitments to respect the universal human rights of its citizens? Thank you, Senator Boxer, and thank you very much for that letter because I, I did see it and I think it does make a difference. The key from our perspective is that we, um, both Ambassador Power and Secretary of State, issued strong statements. And I think ultimately all that attention helped and so the leadership that you displayed really reinforces that, so thank you for that. But I think the key going forward is that we just cannot let up on the pressure and we need to make sure that everybody understands that we're continuing to watch the situation, that we're aware of what's happening with these women and that we're not letting, you know, taking our eye off the ball on it. Well, I hope you can do a follow-up. It would, would help. I'm sure that Chairman and I could write another letter, but having someone be released only to be interrogated for eight hours, I mean... The word gets out pretty quickly. It's, I so agree totally. And I think, especially given that they're working on domestic violence, I mean, it is, it is truly just inexcusable right. what happened. And well, I would it help if the chairman and I wrote another inquiry and you could send it off where you don't? I, I think an inquiry is always great. I think s just speaking out like you're doing today, they'll know that. Okay. We continue to speak out. I think your voices are incredibly important and right. helpful in this matter. Well, they should know that we care a lot about yeah. this. And it's just, you can't say on the one hand, we're really letting people go. On the other hand, Exactly. You're harassing them and intimidating them exactly. and frightening them to ever open their mouth again. It's like, that's just not what we do in, in life, or shouldn't be what we do. Ambassador Russell, in your testimony, you state that one of your top priorities is addressing the needs of adolescent girls, mm -hmm. particularly improving access to secondary schooling. It's so important because we know research shows that girls who attend secondary school are healthier and more productive members of society. And I understand your office is currently developing a comprehensive strategy specifically focused on adolescent girls. Can you tell us a little bit about the strategy and when you hope to release it and what you hope it will achieve? I can, and, and thank you for that question. I think. Um, 
adolescent girls is one of the issues that is most important to me personally and to our office because as we've traveled around, we've seen the impact of all of the terrible things that happen to women around the world are really just horrible for these young girls. And what the international community of the United States have spent a lot of time and money and effort educating children. And we've really made a dent in the number of primary school kids who are not in school. And we've done a good job on that. But we're seeing that at the secondary level, girls are dropping off in alarming numbers, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and South, a and South Asia. And the problem for those girls is that they're so much more vulnerable to everything else that mm -hmm. can happen to them. Gender-based violence, HIV, trafficking, all of it just makes them, they're so much more vulnerable. And they're never really in a position to participate fully in their economies. That was the genesis of this. And I think the idea is that we need to address this, and this is my view about all of the work we do, we have to try to address these issues in a comprehensive way. Mm -hmm. And that, I would say, has not always been the strength of the international community. We tend to do one thing or another, and we're looking at taking this, uh, this group of girls, the single most important thing we know we can do is keep them in school, but even mm -hmm. keeping them in school, it's not so easy just to build a school. You have to figure out what the reasons are that they're not going to school. Why are their parents getting them married off? Why are they s subjected to violence either in the school or on the way to school? It's a very complicated set of problems, but we're committed to addressing them holistically, and that's, that was the purpose and is the purpose of the strategy. So just cutting to the chase, when will you have something for us to see on this? Well, it's, I would say it's, it's almost finished. It has to go through the clearance process Good. of the State well, Department. We so that could be like two days or 10 years. No, I'm just Well, I know we'll, we'll get it done. We'll definitely get well, it done. Well, remember, the president only has a limited exactly. time. Exactly, so. exactly. Um, I have one last question, then I'm going to uh, leave it over to you. Um, I wanted to ask this to Mr. Feely so he doesn't feel that he's left out. Um, Latin America and the Caribbean have booming renewable energy markets. In 2013, over $7 billion was invested in renewable energy in countries including Brazil and Chile, Mexico, Costa Rica, Peru, and Panama. The Caribbean wants to break free from its dependence on Venezuelan oil. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a good thing. Chile and Mexico are discovering that solar power is an inexpensive source of power for many projects. And many countries are looking to renewable energy as the way to make bold commitments ahead of the upcoming Paris Climate Conference. What are we doing to promote renewable energy in the region? And what more can we do to help American clean energy companies take advantage of the tremendous growth opportunities in Latin America and the Caribbean? Thank you very much for that question, Senator Boxer. Uh, we are doing quite a bit. Uh, in point of fact, we agree with you completely uh, that this is an area where we absolutely must demonstrate American leadership. The Vice President has launched something called the Caribbean Energy Security Initiative. We held a summit here in January. The focus of this, frankly, as you rightly put, is not necessarily on Venezuela, but it is using technology and using the force of markets to get one of the world's most energy dependent regions that dependent upon imports to a place where they can have the same types of reliable, uh, secure, affordable energy that comes from a diversified energy mix in terms of both generation and distribution. Uh, SESI, as we call it, the Caribbean Energy Security Initiative, has received tremendous welcome in the region. Uh, you may be aware that the President just traveled to Jamaica, and in that trip, uh, the President announced a, for a clean energy finance uh, facility for the Caribbean and Central America. Uh, this will be a $20 million facility that will 
encourage investment in clean energy projects uh, in the region. It will provide early stage funding to catalyze greater uh, private and public sector investment, and we'll be working very closely with our colleagues in the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. So it's on our sort of frontal lobe, as they say in Spanish, entre ceja y ceja, it's right there, right and there. we're gonna continue to push it. Um, Mr. Chairman, I'm gonna leave this to you. I, I wanted to say for me, getting them away from having to deal with Venezuela on their energy lifeline is a good thing, just for the record. Thank you. Senator Perdue. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member. Thank you for holding this uh, very important hearing, and thank you uh, for your uh, attendance and, and testimony. I want to make a comment. Um, Senator Gardner and I just got back from a, uh, a trip to the Middle East, and we saw five ambassadors over there and, and many staff. I want to tell you how impressed we are with uh, State Department personnel who devote their careers to foreign service, and I just want to thank you for, for your career of contributions. You know, we all seek perfection, and there is no such entity, but uh, I admire what, what you guys are doing. I, I want to change the topic a little bit to Haiti uh, briefly. I, I was very blessed to go on a mission trip uh, after my first election last November to Haiti to a, a small town called Grand Guave, uh, about 45 miles southwest of um, Port-au-Prince. Uh, to a project, an orphanage basically, well, it was an orphanage sponsored by the Good Samaritan Project. Um, I was really troubled. We had about 275 kids there. A significant number of those kids um, had parents uh, in the location, in, in the area, in environs there, uh, southwest of Port-au-Prince. But they had given their kids up to the orphanages because they couldn't feed them. Now, this is five years after the um, catastrophe there, the earthquake. Their church uh, their school, their dormitory had all been destroyed. Total, no injuries, a miracle. They were out playing soccer, but a miracle, nobody injured. But here we are five years later, and even with all the money, $3.5 billion we've poured into that. And by the way, you know, I was so proud at the time that happened with U.S. support there. The Navy, uh, all the NGOs, all the private uh, religious, uh, all the other foundations that were, were pouring uh, time, money, and, and people in there. And yet, here we are five years later, and I'm not criticizing, I just want to know, uh, Madam Ambassador, you know, what, what's your take on uh, what's going on there, particularly as it affects young mothers who are having to give their kids up to these orphanages because they can't feed them? Well, Senator, thank you, um, um, thank you for taking that trip. I, I traveled there shortly after the earthquake with uh, the First Lady and Dr. Biden and was truly shocked at the devastation and I saw the people living on the streets and I know that throughout this time, and I'm, I'm sure Assistant Secretary Feely can discuss this more, but we have made an investment and have had some success moving forward, but the challenges remain. And what we're very concerned about in, in my office are the issues that you raise of, of uh, the violence that these children are facing, the fact that they're not really being well taken care of, and the violence that their mothers are facing in their communities and in their homes. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we, USAID is doing a fair bit of work there, working hard on it, but I, I do recognize that it's a continuing challenge. Secretary Field, I'd like your comment, but also, how do you evaluate, you know, the money, not just the money, it's the time, the heartbreak, everything else that, that we have put in to countries like that after the fact to evaluate the effectiveness of, of what we do in catastrophes like that? 
Absolutely, sir. Um, I would just echo what Ambassador Russell said and what you said. Haiti is perhaps the most difficult case that we have of persistent underdevelopment in the Western Hemisphere. And it is a testament to the very good people of the United States that every time I travel through the Miami airport, I see the brigades of uh, kids in T-shirts from churches and communities. Um, that's all absolutely necessary, but it's not sufficient. One of the things I think that we have to look at is the manner in which our policy, in addition to our programming assistance to work on the development issues, the education, the child maternal health, the, the basic delivery of services, how our policy towards Haiti is absolutely essential supporting elections coming up this year, providing in Haiti what they frankly have not had for a very, very long time, which is a regular, predictable, strong democracy where you have multiple voices from civil society that are included. That's got to be one of the metrics. It is not, nobody in my building and no Secretary of State is going to say that we are there yet. Um, all democracy strengthening is never an end zone. It's a constant process. But I do think that we have, with the elections coming up this fall, we have an opportunity um, to continue to help that, frankly, blighted country. I would also say that our assistance has made inroads in making sure that we are addressing the emergency aspects. And you're right, it's five years after. But there is still food insecurity in Haiti. There are still, you've flown over it. I'm sorry, food insecurity? Food insecurity, meaning that they are unable to feed all their people. I, I have another word for that. But, uh, and we call that it, uh, that's, a, that's the technical term, the term I know, hunger. I know, I know many, in your heart, it, it's a terrible situation. It's horrible. And if you've flown over the Dominican Republic and Hispaniola, you can see where the deforest station line is right there. So our assistance goes to trying to reforest, trying to provide money to small communities and provide technical assistance so that they can grow sustainable crops, so that they can feed themselves. There's a program that's been very successful, the Global Cook Stove Initiative, whereby in Haiti, as you know, they've got to burn trees to get the carbon to heat their water so they can avoid cholera. Cook stoves, solar cook stoves, the use of technology, all of those things go into it. Um, we absolutely uh, agree with you that we have to keep Haiti as a priority. We do keep Haiti as a priority in our 2016 request, and we will continue to work with this committee and with, frankly, the very good people of the American religious and civil society communities. Uh, Secretary Bennett, would you follow up on the elections? Uh, you, you brought it up, uh, Secretary Finley. I would love to hear what, what the State Department is doing to influence an open and honest, forthright uh, election process there. Because I agree with the Secretary. I think if you're ever going to solve the problems there, we've got to get a participatory representative government there. Thank you, Senator. Um, we engage very um, assiduously on this point, both um, somewhat less publicly, but, but privately in our dialogue with the government and with civil society organizations in Haiti. Um, from the DRL perspective, we don't have a foreign assistance uh, sort of niche in Haiti. Um, you know, it's their much more basic needs, as, as uh, my colleagues have identified, that are right at the top of the urgent list. But having a reasonable elections process is absolutely critical to, you know, the prospect of future success. And so our encouragement in that regard, I think, is, is well. Are you optimistic with this, this next round? 
I think that I will defer to my colleague here. I'll jump on, on that. that grenade, sir. <laughs> sir, the legislative, local, and presidential elections are going to be held in three rounds, uh, we hope. Uh, this is one of those places where diplomacy and the strength of an American diplomatic presence, uh, quite frankly, is worth more than money and funding. Uh, the political will to be able to make the hard decisions within Haiti. They have got a terribly, terribly fractious situation with vying and competing parties and within their own legislature. They've got significant logistical, uh, just simply how do you get Haitians in from places to vote? How do you count those votes? So. I am not going, and, and the reason I won't do this is because, as you are aware, sir, we have a special Haiti coordinator, and so it doesn't always fall directly to the Western Hemisphere. But one thing we do do, in my purview, is we support election monitoring. It's one of the strongest and best exercises that we undertake in the Western Hemisphere to ensure that elections are as transparent and as well run as possible, and we will certainly be doing that. And um, I believe that with MNUSTA, uh, providing the security presence, and although there is going to be a drawdown at the end of the year and they're proceeding towards that, we will look to international solidarity and to our hemispheric partners. That again is a function of our diplomacy. Getting those governments who support free, fair, transparent elections and want to support the Haitian people on board in this effort. Well, thank you for your testimony. Thank you for your service. Thank you, thank Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, for calling this hearing, and thanks to the witnesses for your testimony. Um, the, uh, the Americas have all, the, have all the challenges that we've described, but there, there are some real opportunities now, and one that I think is kind of interesting is that we, we might be on the verge of, a, of two continents without war um, with the negotiations in Colombia over the end of that, that civil war, and, and for any continent to say that is pretty unusual if you look at the globe today, and for the Americas to say that, I don't know if there's been a period in history where the Americas could say that. What is the current status of the negotiations between the Colombian government and the FARC? The U.S. is playing an important role accompanying the government in those negotiations, but uh, Secretary Feely, if you could update us on that. Absolutely, Senator, and thank you very much for your personal commitment to the Americas and the multiple trips that you've taken. Uh, you absolutely put your finger on it. The uh, support for Colombian peace process remains at the top of the President's hemispheric agenda. As you're aware, we have recently tapped uh, former Assistant Secretary Bernie Aronson to join in at a strategic moment in those talks between the FARC and the government of Colombia. I, I, whenever I talk about Colombia, I have to be careful not to get too sentimental because I worked there in 1992 and 93. December 3rd, 1993, Pablo Escobar was taken down. December 5th, I was walking with my two little kids and a car bomb went off about six blocks away. Mm -hmm. That was just pan de cada dia. That's what it was and you remember it. Mm -hmm. uh, Colombia has become a country transformed into a net security exporter, cooperating with the Mexicans, cooperating with the Central Americans, to take much of the professionalization of their police and their military and now provide that to countries that are suffering many of the same symptoms, different causes, but many of the same symptoms that are the product of transnational criminal organizations and the violence they do. Um, you're well aware uh, that they have closed three chapters in the um, discussions in Havana. Um, we will be doing everything we can to support President Santos in seeking in a, a, a successful finish to the negotiations. I think it's very important for the American people, and I thank you for this question so that we can get it out, for the American people to understand this is the longest running continuous 
uh, insurgency in any country in the world. And the Western Hemisphere, by and large, is blessed not to have state-on-state -state conflict, not to have the types of ethnic cleansing or sectarian uh, struggles that we see that make the Middle East such a riven area. So our job right now is to support the president. There are going to be some very difficult political decisions to be made. You're well aware of the split between President Uribe um, and President Santos. Where there are the hard issues about military justice. And this is one of the areas where I think our commitment to human rights and the rule of law, which has been consistent in Colombia, not necessarily always perfect in its implementation, but held out as a goal, and the inclusion of women in conflict in those discussions is one of the things that we support very strongly. I will take a guess on this one because Colombia does come in my portfolio. I am cautiously optimistic, and I would say that I believe the Secretary is as well. Excellent. Thank you, Secretary Feely. And I'm going to segue using Colombia as an example to uh, the plan for Central American engagement, the President's proposed billion-dollar investment in the Northern Triangle. These are challenging countries with high violence rates, high poverty rates. The Unaccompanied Minors Program demonstrated that. But in the hemisphere, we could have reason to be optimistic. Colombia went from failed state to security exporter and third largest economy in Latin America within the space of 15 years. And Mexico now has no net migration to the United States because of improving Mexican economy, even amidst violence challenges. So there is reason to believe that an appropriate level of support, as we did with Plan Merit or as we did with Plan Colombia, could have a positive impact in, in the Central American nations. I visited Honduras with uh, Senator Cornyn in February to go back and talk to friends there and hear about really the way that an investment of this kind could be managed to have the biggest bang for the buck. You could waste a billion dollars or you could spend a billion dollars that would really help put the Northern Triangle on a path similar to the arc that Colombia or Mexico had been on. So talk a little bit about what we are doing in, in dialogue with the leaders of those three nations and especially with civil society in those three nations to figure out how if we were to get that investment through the appropriations process, how would we program it in those countries to have the, the biggest impact on sec, uh, security and economic improvement? Absolutely, sir, and thank you very much for that question. And again, thank you very much for your personal support, your interest, and your expertise in that region. Um, the new Central American strategy for engagement calls for three basic lines of action, promoting prosperity and regional economic integration, promoting improved governance and fighting corruption and government inefficiency, and enhancing security. Note that I put security last. It doesn't mean that it's in order of priority last, but what it does mean is that we have learned in working with this committee and working with American and civil society and working with our Colombian and our Mexican partners that you don't go after the types of problems that afflict the Northern Triangle, where you have very weak institutions, where you have uh, serious scoff laws and, and weak uh, rule of law where uh, People basically do have the opportunity to commit crimes and get away with them, and impunity levels are high. You don't fix those problems, which are deeply rooted and systemic, by simply going to a security strategy. You have to do a whole-of-government, holistic approach to all of it. That's why our strategy, which I will be very frank, and I think it's been told before, we had actually begun a Central American strategic review um, Roberta Jacobson and I had sat down, had talked to our folks, and wanted to move Carsey. We were 
in the sort of words of many people, I think, claim this quote, never waste a good crisis. We were shocked, quite frankly, Senator, last year when we saw the visages of those kids, of those women who were coming north because they'd gotten bad information about immigration reforms and things like that. The push factors are incredibly strong. The push factors can only be sort of mitigated by A, political will from the countries that are down there and the leadership and the, the presidents and their teams. We believe we have that. We've seen a number of hard decisions already taken by many of them. Honduras has extradited people with great personal threat to senior leaders and judges. Uh, the president in Guatemala extended CSIG, the uh, UN's body that investigates uh, crime and impunity originally dating from the um, the internal conflict that ended in 96, and now has developed a tremendous expertise in going after precisely the impunity that does ail all three of those countries. El Salvador has an anti-extortion law. They've passed anti-money laundering legislation. These are real movements, real changes and reforms that give us the confidence that we're working with people who do have the political will and the commitment, and that they will be putting in significantly more of their own resources. They will be taking the steps needed to do tax reform, to do the types of, in Honduras, they will be doing special bonds. This is some Something we learned from Colombia uh, as they did their war bonds earlier. So our report, uh, I'm sorry, our request is significant. How will we go ahead and spend it? In general, we look to, of the billion dollars, we are looking at 314 million for security, 437 million for prosperity, 248 million for governance. Let me give you just one example, I don't want to filibuster here, one example of how we will work in each of those areas. When we talk about working with governance, what are we talking about? We're talking about making government responsible to the people. That means in many of these countries and in the Northern Triangle, the leaders themselves will tell you they have to root out corruption. Government corruption is, is something that absolutely saps the strength of any country that seeks to provide a better future for its people. Take a look at what Honduras has done. They've invited in the Transparency International to set up an office in that country. In prosperity, what have we got? We've got a number of programs that we will hopefully, with this, with the, with this Congress's uh, assent, we will be able to fund better, broken down into uh, a number of entrepreneurial activities. There's something called the We Americas program, which is a public-private partnership that seeks to leverage private sector in both regions to create the capacity for women in those countries, wherever we, and we currently do it throughout the hemisphere, we've trained over 20,000 women from 20 countries to step into what we call the missing middle. There are plenty of micro uh, entrepreneurs in Latin America, as you well know. Uh, they work out of their home. They work in the informal sector. They are not banked. They do not have, they don't pay taxes. They don't have the ability to go to a civil court to settle disputes. How do you take those women and move them? Well, there are a lot of smart people, smarter than me, who are able to figure that out. That's what that program does. We have something called the Small Business Network of the Americas. This takes the great American ingenuity that we have in small business incubators, whether it's at the University of Texas at Austin, whether it's in small chambers of commerce around the United States, and we link them both virtually and directly with small business incubators in Latin America. We've been running this for about three years. We would seek to continue that in an effort to push prosperity from the ground up to create opportunities for folks. And finally, in security. 
We've been doing this under the Central American Regional Security Initiative, as you well know, for a number of years now. We need to help them professionalize their police. I have to say, I sound like Bill Brownfield here, but it does begin with the police. It is not absolutely sufficient. You have to go beyond. But until you have community policing where average Hondurans and Salvadorans and Guatemalans see a cop and don't run away from that cop, you are not going to have security on the ground. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Flake. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Feely, uh, the budget request uh, for FY216 um, includes a request for roughly $6 billion, or I'm sorry, $6 million, gratefully, uh, for converting the U.S. intersection in Cuba to an embassy. Uh, just to be clear, that, that uh, is separate and apart from, you know, this infrastructure that uh, is requested is separate and apart from establishment of diplomatic relations, right? That is correct, sir. That comes under the, uh, that would come under what we call our diplomatic and consular programs budget. And we are asking for a roughly $6 million increase over FY14 uh, to be able to offer the types of services that would be needed when, uh, if and when, diplomatic relations are reestablished. Right. Those types of services, I'm interested what uh, you expect to be providing that you aren't providing now uh, with the intersection. Uh, the, the assumption there'll be more American travelers down there, uh, some uh, will be doing more business uh, that will be allowed. Um, can you just give some sense? Certainly, what sir. We'll be doing? Um, as, as you are aware, um, we are the largest diplomatic mission in Cuba. That is a tremendous surprise to many people. The fact that we do not have formal diplomatic relations does not mean that we don't have a full diplomatic mission down there. It's currently called the U.S. Interest Section. We've been in there since 1977. It was built in 1953, and quite frankly, there's no more room at the inn. It doesn't fit. It doesn't support uh, active diplomacy in the way that we need it to. So we would be, the services we currently provide are consular services. Uh, these would be the standard American citizen services requests. Uh, several months ago, you or actually it's about a year ago now, you might recall there were some American fugitives who went, took a sailboat down there. We worked with Cuban authorities to be able to find them and to bring them back to face justice in the United States. Uh, the consular section works with the Department of Homeland Security very closely to implement the Cuban Family Reunification Program and the 94-95 Migration Accords. Um, we have political and economic reporting that we do from down there. These are the people who go out and meet with independent Cuban civil society actors, an average of two to 300 encounters a week. Uh, they write the cables, they inform us as to the reality on the ground, they do the support activity for many of those brave individuals. We also have got law enforcement liaison down there. So I can go on, I don't wanna, I don't wanna take up too much of your time, but it is more or less, it looks like a lot of other embassies that we have in the region, but we do not have formal diplomatic relations. The current intersection uh, sits right along the Malacan. I think it's about uh, 47,000 square feet. Um, is that going to be expanded or simply refurbished or brought up to It's a very good question, sir. Right now, we are still, as you well know, in the midst of negotiations 
to establish diplomatic relations. Um, that is a process, and that will take some time, and honestly, I cannot tell you when that will happen. Uh, when it does happen, we do not anticipate, certainly in this calendar year, that we will be requesting any uh, funding or assistance. It will be basically a, uh, a revenue, or I'm sorry, a cost-neutral exercise. Uh, but in out years, as our diplomatic activity ramps up, as we keep human rights, and as we keep the promotion of democracy, and promoting a peaceful, democratic transition on the island, uh, we would anticipate that we will need upgrades. For example, we don't have a fleet of cars. Most embassies, and you know this, when you travel, uh, the U.S. Embassy provides transportation assistance, security assistance for visiting senators and congresspersons. We need to do that. We do not have, and you know this, we do not have the IT infrastructure that we need to run a modern 21st century embassy in Havana, and so we would need that. So uh, we do not have any requests in to expand our personnel at this time. It would be primarily for the types of physical upgrades that would take a 1953 building and make it something that is adequate for we 2015. We about, about 50 FTEs there now. That's, That's correct, sir. We have approximately 50 U.S. direct hire personnel, and the rest are uh, Cuban employees who come from Palco, which is the government service provider <laughs> that provides diplomatic personnel to all of the embassies in Cuba another anomalous, non-traditional diplomatic situation, as you're well aware. Ms. Bennett, uh, the administration has requested $20 million for the uh, Cuban Democracy Fund um, or to promote uh, democracy and human rights. I'm sure you're aware, and some of this is not directly related to the State Department's USAID, but we've had some issues uh, there. It was Alan Gross was recently released after five years in, in prison there. He was there on a USAID funded project. Uh, there have also been stories in the media, uh, the, the fake uh, Twitter accounts. Uh, um, HIV clinics is front for uh, other activities. What, uh, what is going to be done in the future to ensure that at least those who are on the, the, the end users, I guess, or the participants in Cuba are aware uh, that, that they are of the program that uh, they are participating in. Uh, my concern has been, uh, uh, well, a couple of concerns. One, that uh, you have some Cubans who are put at risk, considerable risk, um, if, if it's found out, and they may not even know the, the uh, program that they're participating in. Are we going to have better transparency moving ahead than we've had in the past in these programs? Thank you, Senator. I think that's a really good question. Um, Yes, the administration requested $20 million for FY16, and I think in um, Assistant Secretary Jacobson's and Malinowski's testimony, they, they, um, they did commit that we would not cut back on these programs, um, simply because of the importance we attach to advancing the space for human rights in Cuba. Um, I can't speak for my colleagues at USAID. We do have a very collaborative relationship with them, but I would just say here, and, and perhaps we should have um, perhaps a more private conversation about some of what these programs entail to protect the people with whom we do um, work, um, but to just note that we will continue to manage our programs in Cuba in a manner that does protect human rights act activists from further reprisal. 
Um, oh, these are very, very brave people, and we're committed to ensuring both their safety and that they continue the important work that they're doing. Well, I think it's important that we uh, not only protect them, but protect the reputation of USAID in other areas of the world in which they work. And if it is assumed that these may be semi-covert or discreet or whatever you want to call it, that doesn't serve us very well in other areas. Um, and so I, I will be following up on this. I've already had discussions with USAID, uh, but, uh, but we can't allow to go on in the future what has gone on in the past in this regard. Uh, Mr. Feely, you wanted to add something? Yes, Senator. Um, I just wanted to say, as you're well aware, these programs did come to an end uh, in recent years. Uh, we have not engaged in any uh, programs like Zunzuneo uh, or the others. I, I simply would like to make a plea, uh, well, a thanks and a plea uh, to the members of this committee. Um, I have had the enormous privilege of meeting a number of these very brave people, uh, of having Berta Soler come up, of having Rosa Maria Paya come up, of uh, I've gotten to know Ioanni Sanchez quite well. What they all tell us is that when we are very publicly supportive of their work, it does provide them with not a complete shield, but with a little bit of protection uh, from some of the activity. Now, we are well aware that there are many activists who are detained, short-term detentions have gone up. That is absolutely intolerable, and we will continue to cry out against that as we go forward. Your continued support from this committee and from your colleagues in the Senate is enormously helpful. Ioanni Sanchez said to me one time, she said, you have no idea how helpful it is to have the names of individual senators and congresspersons being bandied about on the Mesa Redonda, which is their nightly talk show. Um, and while they may not be taking those names in the, 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 the most favorable of terms, it does provide a measure of international solidarity and protection for them. So I thank you for that, and I would encourage all of you to continue that with us. Thank you. My time is up. Thank you. Senator Markey. <clears throat> thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, very much. The, uh, the UN Committee on Enforced Disappearances has raised serious questions about Mexico. Uh, reportedly, 26,000 people disappeared just since 2006. Uh, there has not been um, the kind of uh, focus by the Mexican government on this issue that uh, satisfies the families or, I think, satisfies the world community. Um, we are, in your budget, receiving a request for $80 million for security cooperation with um, Mexico, a multi-year security partnership. And that's meant to fight organized crime. It's meant to accomplish a lot of goals, but I think one of the goals that we should accomplish as well is dealing with this disappeared persons question, 26,000 people. So how can we leverage this funding in order to make sure that the Mexican government gives us the answers that we want? Some people have said that there should be a publicly available website where all the names are up and their status. Uh, should we make that a condition of our $80 million assistance. What can we do, you know, to pull back the curtain and to use our clout in order to get the answers for these families? Thank you, Senator, for that question. You put your finger on exactly what is one of the most difficult challenges in our relationship with Mexico. Mexico is a strategic partner, and Mexico's transformation, much like Colombia's, has been stunning. 
uh, and we have the entire commercial side of our activity that is in direct benefit of the American people through trade and through commerce and through family exchanges, et cetera. Where we are still in a process very much of helping Mexico in a new paradigm of cooperation under the Merit Initiative, uh, where we are in terms of this request for 80 million, which is specifically the INCL funding that we would be asking, is very much where you are, sir, to use that in conjunction with effective diplomacy and partnership to make sure that Mexico is able to investigate the people, not just in Ayotzinapa and Iguala and Tlatlaya and the other places where some of these horrific disappearances occur. So what, what conditions should we attach to our funding that could effectively uh, ensure that the Mexican government is creating the transparency, mm -hmm. which the well, there are needs to make sure that this secret uh, system uh, is uh, ended? Uh, only if we apply our clout is yes, there sir. ever going to be an answer. Well, there already are restrictions on past year Mexico funding, as you're aware, uh, dependent upon human rights reports that we routinely submit and we work with uh, both appropriators and with authorizers to ensure that we get the best answers that we can. I think it's important to understand and to signal here that in the case of Iguala, which is, is a horrible tragedy and which we made our, our, our repulsion, frankly, at what had happened very clear. It appears to be in the investigation where they've got, where the Mexican authorities have got over 100 people detained. They've got a number of whom they believe to be the intellectual authors and the actual people who car carried it out, uh, Los Guerreros Unidos. They've got them in a judicial process. Uh, we, every time we talk to them, and we just had Secretary Malinowski, we just had Deputy Secretary Blinken in Mexico, we raise it with them, and the Mexicans know very clearly. Is it unreasonable to request a, a publicly accessible database of all of the names of the missing? Is that an unreasonable request for the United States to make of the Mexican government as part of our a transfer of $80 million to them? My understanding, sir, is that the Mexicans have been working on, uh, in the Ministry of Government, on getting databases. Um, this is, and I cannot give you a specific uh, status report on their efforts, but I would point to their- So you, you're saying they are going to put up a database with all the names of all of the missing? Is that what you're saying? I cannot say that, sir. Well, I think that's the question. You know, should we? It's a good question. Should we condition our funding on them putting the names up? Yeah. Twenty-six thousand people. You know, we're still talking about Argentina from thirty and forty years ago, huh? We're still trying to come to, come to grips with that. This is the here and now. Well, this as is you know, this is twenty years post NAFTA. Yes, sir. Uh, this is with a request for us to be cooperating them. This is with uh, children on our borders last year. Uh, in a partnership with them, should not should we not be requesting that transparency? We request transparency in a number of ways, and if you take a look at the recent anti-corruption law that was passed, the no, I'm talking about a data information. I'm saying put the names up yes, there, sir. Mexican government. Let us see. Tell, prove to us that you have a government that's willing to come to grips with the with the actual names listed that the families can see, the questions can be asked about. Can we do that as a government? Sir, in general, having maximum flexibility 
to spend and work in coordination and in consultation with the Senate, maximum flexibility to decide how we will spend our money with the Mexicans uh, is what every administration seeks, and we're no different. What I would say is this. We have developed what I call, and I have had the privilege of working in Mexico on two separate occasions, and the history of cooperation with Mexico on human rights, on democracy, on transnational organized crime is one that has indeed taken a quantum leap forward. No, and I appreciate that. I'm dealing with a specific. The one specific I'm dealing thing. with this 26,000 missing persons. Okay? Yes, that's, sir. That's all I'm dealing with. Everything else is I hear well, you. not part of this conversation. I just want to get an answer to that, a, a, a website, a, something that's transparent, something that actually would bring accountability, <coughs> mm -hmm. you know? We, why don't we just ask the Mexican government to do that and condition the funding on that? I mean, talk about crime. Talk about a suspect area where you're wondering how much sure. can we trust a government on the rest of their cooperation when they won't even list the names of the people who have disappeared. And no, that's, I, next that is to them, something we will the take conditions back. under which they disappeared. I, I, let me take that back. One thing I would point out, and you know this from your experience with other countries, uh, those numbers are very difficult to pin down because of the very nature of disappearances. How many are reported? How many aren't? That's the problem. And that's, and and what and I'm in saying the ministry, is if there was a website, then people could say, hey, the name's not up on that website. I want my family member up on that website, too. Mm -hmm. There would be a mechanism that would then be publicly you know, listed that would give those families you know, the reason to say to human rights groups, they're not putting my family member's name up there as well. Huh? So I just think that from our government's perspective, it's kind of a, a simple thing to do, but I think it would be a, a powerful tool that would be used by families who believe they've been abandoned, believe they're just non-persons. Huh? Just having your name up there, it's like having a loved one's name on the Vietnam Wall. Okay? Yes, it's just, it's recognition. You know, you can touch their spirit at least, you know? It keeps hope alive in a family. So I would just say to you that I think that's a powerful opportunity for the U.S. government to act and to act in a way that uh, I think would empower people to say to their government. Thank you, sir. Uh, please give us the answers to our family. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm glad to be back. We had the president of Armenia, so. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, let me ask uh, Ms. Bennett, earlier this year, uh, this committee, under the leadership of Chairman Caulker, took a very strong interest in ending modern slavery, highlighted by an important hearing on February the 4th. On April 22nd, the Senate voted 99 to 0 to strengthen domestic penalties against human trafficking and to provide additional uh, protections for victims. On the same day, Congressman Smith held a House subcommittee hearing examining the State Department's trafficking in persons report and emphasizing the need to maintain the integrity of the tier ranking system. Later that very same day, a strong uh, 16 to 10 bipartisan vote, the Senate Finance Committee accepted my amendment to the Trade Promotion Authority Bill to prohibit expedited congressional procedures for trade deals with countries ranked tier three on the TIP report. Of course, tier three is among the worst countries. So do you believe uh, that uh, we should be in the midst of providing fast track for countries that are the worst offenders in human trafficking? 
Thank you, Senator. Um, I think the administration is deeply committed to preventing and eliminating all forms of trafficking in persons throughout the world. And I can just say that some of what I have seen in my own previous incarnations overseas and my foreign service um, capacity, it's, I mean, it's simply horrific. And so we, we engage- we, we can agree to that. Uh, so you and I are in agreement on that. My question, which could be a simple yes or no, is do you believe that we should be fast-tracking countries that have the worst record under our own reports in terms of human trafficking? I think it's a fair point that economic engagement is a tool in our toolkit. Um, and we're certainly following the amendment closely as it's under discussion, as the House and the Senate work through the bill. But we have used economic engagement, and other countries have not moved off the list as a result of economic engagement. Let me ask you this. The State Department's 2015 TIP report is due to be released next month. In the State Department's own words, it, quote, is the U.S. government's principal diplomatic tool to engage foreign governments on human trafficking. Now, all of us who share a deep concern about the scourge of human trafficking depend on the integrity of that report for the truth about where the trafficking is worse and what must be done about it. Is the issue human trafficking important to your work in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor? Uh, yes, it is important to our work in the Bureau. I will just note that the trafficking in persons uh, structure, the office that authors the report and advances these foreign policy priority programs, um, is actually separate and is not under my purview. Mm -hmm. um, that said, we work quite closely with them, and the uh, you know, and, and we work very hard to sort of de-conflict, I would say, where they can provide some assistance that perhaps we can't, and vice versa. We work very collaboratively. So is there, uh, and I understand technically it's in uh, right. Secretary Sewell's uh, uh, ambit, but is the accuracy, the reliability, the integrity of the TIP uh, report important to the department? It is, absolutely. This is a process that um, is you know, the, that every embassy in our world is vested in. Do you have any reason to doubt the integrity of the reporting process? I do not, although I am uh, not involved in it this year in quite the same way that I have been in prior incarnations. Well, based upon your prior experience, do you believe? No, I don't. Based upon your prior experience, are the rankings subject to political pressure in light of other priorities? My experience does not suggest that, but I can't speak more broadly. Okay. Uh, Mr. Feely, as you know, Cuba and Venezuela are ranked tier three in the TIP report, the worst ranking, which indicates they do not comply with the Trafficking Victims Protection Act's minimum standards and aren't making significant efforts to do so. So is the integrity of the TIP uh, report important to your section of the State Department? Undeniably, yes, sir. Are you, are you confident of the integrity of the report? I believe that we work with our embassies and with our DRL and our trafficking in persons colleagues to produce the very best report that we can with the information that we have. So even though Cuba is a tier three, one of the worst traffickers, uh, where Year Magazine had a couple of years ago, sexual hotspot of the world, uh, even though in fact it is a tier three, 
we are in the midst of giving them a series of concessions, even though they are among the wor worst traffickers in the world. Sir, the approach that the administration has taken to restart diplomatic relations uh, with Cuba is in no way a reward for any perceived good behavior. We agree completely with you and Senator Rubio and many members who believe that the Castro government is a single-party state that clearly wants no part of democracy and which has systematically abused the human rights of its people. What I would say is that with regard to TIP, the previous tier three rankings, we believe that they have been justified based on the specific criteria of the TIP law. Yeah. Well, let me just say that, so you have a country that's a tier three ranking, you have a country that uh, violates UN Security Council resolutions and shipments of arms to North Korea for which it got not even a slap on the wrist, you got a country that just accepted it was in the midst of receiving another shipment of arms in violation of international law that was probably headed for the FARC. Uh, you have a country that has uh, Joanne Chesimard, a convicted terrorist on the FBI 10 most wanted list of terrorists in the world uh, who killed a New Jersey state trooper. And I know we're not you know, rewarding them for that behavior, but we're certainly not making progress on any of it. Let me ask you one last question, which is a broader question than beyond Cuba. In our democracy programs, mm -hmm. I am sadly uh, uh, concerned. We have never in the world, our democracy programs have ever been rejected by a totalitarian government or a repressive regime, that that has subverted the very essence of our democracy programs. And yet there is a suggestion that somehow because a country doesn't like it or we didn't tell them everything about our democracy program, which we work with a lot of groups in the world in which we don't tell them about a country that doesn't like the fact that we are trying to promote democracy in that country, that we would subvert it. So I, I, I hope we don't go down that road because then I, for one, will lead a charge as much as I am the biggest supporter and have been for 23 years of our democracy programs. If we're going to start subverting it to a country that doesn't like it and therefore we're going to start changing what we are doing, then uh, to be very honest with you, that's a slope for which there's a lot of consequences. A lot of my friends who don't seem to have a problem with, you know, with what goes on in Cuba but are very strong about places in Burma and other places in the world. Yet, if you're going to start subverting democracy programs because a country rejects it because they're totalitarian, uh, then that's a slippery slope, and I hope we don't get to that, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, Secretary Feely, let me touch on a couple points here, and then I don't know if any of the other members have any follow-up questions. I wanted to first touch on Colombia, the negotiations going on with the FARC. Has the Santos administration asked for Simón Trinidad's release or temporary release for purposes of participating in the peace negotiations? Mr. Chairman, the Colombians have not asked us to release Simon Trinidad. Are you prepared today on behalf of the administration to state that the release of Mr. Trinidad from U.S. custody as a part of any future deal between Colombia and the FARC is off the table? Senator, as you well know, Mr. Trinidad is incarcerated in the United States for very serious crimes. And I have to be honest, I am not I cannot make final decisions that will be made by my superiors. What I will tell you is that our 
extradition relationship with Colombia is one of the most fruitful. I was privileged to participate in the beginning of it before they had extradition of Colombian nationals. And President Santos and his negotiating team know what an incredibly serious tool this is and the priority that we make keeping our extradition relationship strong with Colombia. But, but you can't say that as of this moment, you're not aware of any efforts uh, for, to either release or temporary release Mr. Trinidad. What I can tell you, sir, is I am not aware of any effort. Okay. I wanted to, I agree with this project, the Central American strategy and the billion dollars, obviously, but here's what's important. How are we going to measure progress? Do we have benchmarks set for how we're going to measure success, uh, what the project is going to look like? Because you touch an interesting point, and I've talked about this often, whether it's the migratory crisis that we've now seen or some other issues regarding the Northern Triangle countries, there are entire parts of those countries that are not under the writ of the government. In essence, they're controlled by transnational criminal groups that terrorize the populace and, quite frankly, are driving people out of there for fear of their own safety and, of course, lack of hope in their own future. So the idea that we would get involved in an alliance for prosperity, or I guess this is called the, uh, uh, I've met with the presidents of all three countries and their foreign ministers, the, uh, this plan for prosperity is a good idea, but how are we going to measure success in these programs? What are the metrics? Mr. Chairman, thank you for that question and thank you for raising the importance of metrics. I said in my testimony that we have to be accountable and we have to work with you. I think one of the things that we, before we began this effort, we looked to see if we could get some signals of measurable progress, the demonstration of political will. Uh, it was the assessment of the president and the vice president that we did have indications, certainly not getting us over any goal line, but we did have indications from them. I mentioned some of them earlier. Uh, if you take a look at Honduras, they have dropped their murder rate, still way too high, but they've dropped it 22% in the last year. If you take a look at what in Honduras they did uh, in the Ministry of Public Security, they published a huge glossy that indicated almost where every Lempira went in terms of their spending. Go over to El Salvador, I mentioned earlier, the, um, the anti-extortion law. Um, take a look at what we did with El Salvador in terms of our MCC compact, their second one for $277 million. There were a number of things that the Salvadorans had not done in terms of making their domestic legislation regarding anti-money laundering uh, up to international FATF standards, the Financial Action Task Force uh, things. We worked with them through our diplomacy and we were able to get them to a place where we were able to approve that. You put your finger on it. Metrics are absolutely important. Now, having said that, I will also say you can look at a whole bunch of statistics on inputs and not necessarily get the outputs that you seek. I used to tell people when they would come and visit us, as you did in Mexico, that the, uh, you know, what does success look like? Uh, I can't sit here and tell you every single thing, but I can tell you that how a country presents itself and how the people of a country feel about their government, about their mayors, about their police, about their justices, and the building of that confidence is extremely important. Maybe difficult to measure, but we can use polling and things like that. But metrics is absolutely on the forefront of our efforts here. Well, I would just add that obviously the one billion won't be enough to finish the plan. There's, I would imagine there are out year planned, assuming that there's success with the plan, there would be future years for continued implementation. Sir, we, we, right now, I can only speak, as you can appreciate, for FY16. But okay. if we look at uh, our history in Colombia and we look at our history in Mexico, I would say there is no substitute in this hemisphere for strong American leadership, technical assistance, and the leveraging ability that we bring 
both in terms of the programming as well as in terms of the, domestic, uh, the political and diplomatic support. Okay, I want to examine the $6 million for changes to the interest section into an embassy. In May of 2014, the State Department's Office of Inspector General released a report following an inspection of that facility. The report included, by the way, a classified annex that, uh, with key judgments, which I've reviewed, and recommendations on how to improve the security and functionality of the interest section. Can you tell us here in this setting, without obviously going into any of the details in the classified annex, uh, what, uh, how many of those recommendations have been acted upon? I cannot tell you specifically. I owe you that answer, sir. Okay. Can, can you tell us then how much of this money will go towards addressing uh, those portions, and, and, and either it can be a written update or a response, classified if necessary, on what the State Department has done or, or plans to do to the interest section and how many of the recommendations, particularly the ones in the classified annex uh, to the report, have been addressed. That's an important point uh, that the committee needs to understand, is how many of those things in that report, both the open portions of it and especially the classified portions of it, are going to be addressed with these $6 million that you're asking for. I owe you that as a take back, sir. As I mentioned in general terms, what I can say here in, in this setting is that the additional $6.6 .6 million that we would be seeking for DNCP funding, diplomatic and consular program funding, is basically for necessary modernization. But we owe you a more specific Physical answer. upgrades. Sir. Okay. There are no, there are no uh, FTEs, as we call them, full-time employments. Uh, we do not ex anticipate expanding the number of diplomats that we're sending down there in the short term. Okay, because well, you talked about these are all going to be updates to the facility, and, and th that's important in terms of not just in light of that report, but in general the functions that you're talking about providing there. But beyond it, you talked about there's no IT capability or advanced IT capability, there's no cars. And that leads me to my following point. Let, let's talk first about personnel, and you talk about FTEs. Mm -hmm. uh, this employment of Cuban personnel provided by the Cuban government, there is no doubt in your mind that these employees just aren't random people that applied for a job, that a significant portion of them, if not all, have strong links to Cuban intelligence. Sir, uh, what I would say to that is that we and every other diplomatic mission uh, deal with the circumstances that we find on the ground. Uh, this is not ideal. This is unique. Uh, there are, uh, I'm not sure if there are other places in the world where the host government provides uh, your local employment, uh, your locally employed staff. Well, even that in and of itself raises a tremendous flag, does it not? We're going to have an expanded embassy capability on the, in this country, uh, a nation that uh, we know has made the United States a priority of intelligence gathering, a country that we know uh, expenses, despite their poor budgetary conditions, spends a significant amount of money on intelligence activity, and they provide us employees, and I guarantee you that not a single one of them is just a plumber or a uh, janitor. Uh, every single one reports back to the government, um, and, and I just think that's a major red flag in terms of expanding an embassy capability, uh, where in fact would probably require us to expand the number of Cuban employees working, employed by the government. People, I, I don't know if the American people realize this, how many what a large number of basically Cuban government employees work inside of our consular facility and will be working inside of our embassy in Havana. That is a huge problem. Let me ask you something else because as part of upgrading this, do we have commitments from the Cubans that uh, we'll be able to bring in new modern equipment and supplies? 
Senator Rubio, that is one of the issues that we are discussing with them, and I am my boss is the lead negotiator, and quite frankly, I am not able to provide you uh, in this setting with a status of where we are uh, with regard to uh, access by our lead officials um, or the importation. As you can appreciate, these are conversations that are at the core of our diplomatic conversations, and. Um, nobody is prejudging the outcome. Well, let me ask you this. Will the embassy or the intersection now, embassy later, be able to receive regular secure shipments unmolested by the regime? Once again, sir, one of the issues we are discussing with them, and I am not in a position today to be able to tell you yes or no categorically. Well, again, that, that is a huge area of concern. We're priority. being asked to invest money in an embassy in Havana, but we're going to have to hire Cuban agents to work in the embassy. We're, we're, and there's no guarantee as of yet that we're going to be allowed to bring in any equipment we want to upgrade the embassy, because we've been told this would be an embassy just like any other embassy in the world, except it'll have Cuban agents working inside of it. We will not, and we have no commitments yet that we'll be allowed to bring our own equipment, and we have no uh, commitments yet that we would be allowed to bring uh, secured containers of, of equipment into the embassy. Other than that, it's just like every other embassy, I suppose. Sir, I think that there's the embassies. It'll have a door and a window, but, but it won't but it won't have our own computer equipment, our own employees, or a secure method of, of delivering material. I mean, this is a big issue of concern, and one that we're going to be debating as we get into this whole funding issue, because irrespective of how you may feel about an opening towards Cuba, if we're going to have an embassy, it should be a real embassy, not an embassy that is mined with Cuban intelligence officials, unable to upgrade its equipment, and unable to uh, bring in in a secure way uh, both documents and material for the use of the embassy. And I understand that's not your decision to make, but I'm yes, just sir. pointing to the fact that that's going to be a major problem. Well, and it is a major priority for us. If you take a look, we are attempting to reestablish diplomatic relations. We are not there yet, as you well know, under the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic and Consular Relations. The overriding principle of that is that there is reciprocity. Um, in many embassies around the world, we do not have 100% perfect reciprocity, and we have to deal with the circumstances that we have. The fact that we have PALCO employees in the interest section currently is one that is an inherited state of affairs but I absolutely do take very seriously, and I know my boss does, and you've spoken with Roberta Jacobson and with the secretary on this, we do take very seriously the issues you've raised about shipments, yeah. about movement, and about our ability to conduct relations, diplomatic relations, in a country where we have not had them before. Well, again, we I'm, haven't had them for. Yeah, no, I understand, but here. but I guess my point is, as this is represented to the committee, it should not be represented as an embassy, just like any other we have around the world. I think it's important that if, in fact, this is an embassy that's going to have Cuban intelligence agents working in it, unable to upgrade equipment unless the Cubans allow it, unable to bring in cars unless they allow it, unable to upgrade our technological capabilities, and unable to securely deliver documents and other type uh, uh, equipment into the into the facility, it's not just like every other embassy. It, it's, and, and that's an important thing to point out. Beyond it, on the personnel issue, is there plans for the embassy to be able to have the capacity to host members of Cuba's pro-democratic opposition? Sir, as you're well aware, we currently offer uh, free internet 
uh, to independent civil society members. We get upwards of about 300 people a week who come in. Um, we absolutely have regular contact with all of those folks across the wide spectrum of independent civil society people in Cuba. They are not a monolithic group, as you know well. Um, and we will absolutely, one of the issues that we are discussing is to allow uh, for our people uh, to be able to go out and meet with those folks without fear of reprisal. Well, so you'll continue the programs of allowing uh, pro-democracy activists and others to come into the facility, use the internet, assuming we can get the equipment in there, and all sorts of, that's good news. But let me ask you this, and you talked about being able to go out and reach out to people. Is there, is it our intention to create the equivalent of a response team at the embassy that will be able to visit, visit dissidents when they're jailed, when they're beaten, when they're harassed? Has there been conversations about creating uh, a group of individuals working for the U.S. government that will be able to go out and interact with these dissidents when they're arrested, when they're beaten, when they're jailed, out in the country, not simply in our facility? Once again, Senator, as I have not been party to the negotiations, I unfortunately am not able to give you a specific answer to that specific question. Okay. But it is a priority that future diplomats of the United States in an embassy are able to reach out and speak freely with independent members of civil society. Well, you also talked about in the past that facilities been used for issues of fugitives, uh, the intersection, that it in the past has sent teams there to seek out fugitives. You talked about the importance of a an, an U.S. embassy having law enforcement liaisons working from the facility, correct? That is correct. Okay. And, 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 and in point of fact, the Cubans have agreed to a law enforcement working group with us. Okay, and, and does that mean that they've also agreed to open the case of Joanne Chesimard uh, to be returned to the U.S.? Has that been discussed at all? Sir, I'm from New York, and I am the, um, I'm from a family of cops and firemen, uh, and I remember when Werner Trost was killed. Um, and I know that his family has cried out for justice, um, and I know that there are many other um, fugitives from American justice and international justice there. Uh, it is the administration's policy that through a engagement that is diplomatic, uh, that allows our law enforcement people to speak to one another, we will pursue at every level that we can the return of fugitives. Um, I cannot guarantee any outcome, sir, no, I but I can I tell you sure it is a priority. Okay. The, um and again, I just want to go back to this point because it's going to be part of our conversations. This is a budget oversight hearing, not a necessarily Certainly. a policy one per se, although it budget and policy overlap. And we're going to be asked to fund a new embassy in Havana. But I think it's important for members to understand before they approve that funding, and I think it's important for the State Department to understand before they come here and ask for that. We need to understand exactly what we're funding, and that's why I ask you these questions. Are we funding a building that in essence continues to be limited but just has the name embassy on it or where are we going to be funding a building where we'll have our own personnel our own equipment our ability to send material in securely without interference from the cuban government in essence a real embassy or is it just going to be the current intersection filled with cuban agents unable to upgrade technologically and uh, just costing more money and that's an important point that we're going to have to have a conversation about as we get closer to that i wanted to end with a couple more points uh, and Senator Menendez touched upon this because this is important. You know, on February 28th of this year, a Chinese flagged vessel was intercepted in Cartagena, Colombia, en route to Cuba, carrying 15 containers of heavy weaponry hidden as a grain shipment. This is the second time in 18 months that the Cuban military has been caught smuggling weapons internationally. 
Uh, has the State Department made any statements regarding this matter? I'm going to have to check for you, Senator. I, I, we were very well aware of the case. I'm trying to recall if we have made any statements about it. As you are aware from uh, the Chongchonggong incident in the Panama Canal, um, the provenance and ultimate destination of an awful lot of shipping uh, on the high seas is not always completely clear at the outset. Uh, we have spoken to our Colombian partners on that, but I owe you a better response as to whether or not we've made public statements on it. We have certainly con consulted with our, our, our Colombian partners. Well, I think this is a critical point because weapons between China, weapons sales between China and Cuba are not otherwise sanctioned internationally. So why would they hide this weaponry in grain uh, if in fact that, that alone should raise alarm as to what exactly they're doing, which brings me to a, uh, perhaps my final point, and that is according to the memorandum of justification for the rescission of Cuba's designation as a state sponsor of terrorism uh, that was shared with Congress last month, the Cubans reject, quote, Cuba rejects and condemns all terrorist acts, methods and practices in all its forms and manifestations. It likewise condemns any action intended to encourage, support, finance, or cover up any terrorist act, method, or practice, end quote. Can my office be provided a copy of the communication between Cuba and the United States in which Cuba committed to these words that I just read? Sir, I'm not authorized to get that. I will certainly take it back. To give you that assurance, I will take back the request. Well, we'll make that request as well of the Secretary of State. Would that be the appropriate individual? Uh, yes, sir. Um, it also states that the governments of Spain and Colombia have no objection to the rescission of Cuba's designation as a state sponsor of terrorism. Can, I would also put in the request for those documents. Uh, if those I, documents exist, sir, I okay. will certainly. Uh, and I guess my final question is one related to the democracy programs on the island. And you know, we've heard some criticism here, uh, uh, Senator Flake, but others have as well, that these programs act as some sort of a covert program. I think it's important to point out that, um, and I think Senator Menendez touched upon this, but these programs, these were not weapons programs, correct? No, these were not what programs to hand out explosives on the island. These were programs to basically help individual Cubans become empowered by having access to social media, having, as reported in the media, that's what they were, to have access to social media, access to the internet. Doesn't the fact that that in and of itself is considered subversive, subversive tell us everything we need to know about that regime? Our human rights funding hedge has been supported uh, from this committee for many years, does in fact seek to empower the Cuban people. Our strategy, our strategic end state in Cuba has remained the same from December 16th to December 18th. It is to promote a peaceful democratic transition on the island of Cuba led by Cubans so that they will become a democratic prosperous and secure country and join the rest of the countries of the hemisphere. My colleagues in DRL, my colleagues in USAID have uh, engaged in those programs uh, with the goal of doing exactly that. And there have been many people who have benefited from that. Um, and there have been many lessons learned along the way. As my colleague from DRL said, Providing democracy assistance in restrictive environments is one of the most difficult tasks we do as diplomats. So those programs remain a priority? Those programs remain a priority. Sir. And under no circumstances, as far as you know, will those programs ever be weakened or watered down or eliminated in an effort to gain further concessions or the favor of the Cuban government? Senator Rubio, I can only speak to the FY16 uh, request. These, the FY16 request requests the same amount of funding as in the past, $20 million. Thank you, Senator Kane.
Just briefly, thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, Secretary Bennett, uh, we are, I'm gonna follow up on a line of questioning from Senator Menendez. The, an issue that is of, of great moment right now is the discussion over trade promotion authority and ultimately a, uh, the, the idea that a Trans-Pacific Partnership deal would follow. To what extent has your bureau been engaged in discussions with the U.S. Trade Representative about uh, labor protections as part of either a tr trade promotion authority or a Trans-Pacific Partnership deal. Thank you, Senator Kane. Um, through the TPP negotiations, I mean, we really are seeking strong and enforceable commitments on fundamental labor rights. Mm -hmm. um, our uh, International Labor Affairs Office within the Bureau um, is vectored into that. I can't give you specifics without taking it back and, and continuing this on precisely what stages of negotiations and whatnot they have injected, um, you know, their views. But we have been involved in, you know, what we can do to uh, you know, advance elimination of forced and compulsory labor, child labor, um, commercial sex exploitation, you know, a whole variety yeah. of, of, of angles in that regard. I, I think I'm going to submit a question for the record on this because I would like to get specifics about the Bureau's engagement with USTR on this point. I'm, I'm generally pro-trade, but I do think the labor protection elements are, are very important given the, you know, the nations we're dealing with. We don't want to disadvantage American workers and the degree to which um, uh, your bureau has interacted with USTR would be something I'm interested in. So I'll submit that one for the record. Sure. Let me right. just, uh, Secretary Feely, just follow up with you. The, um, and I uh, would second comments made by, um, by the chairman about uh, the Central American Engagement Plan, the need for metrics. You talked about the sort of the three pillars of investment, prosperity of investments, governance investments, and security investments, and, and they're very critical. I will just kind of put on the record um, a lot of this violence uh, in the, the nations that are corrupting their institutions, affecting both the security and governance pillars and the prosperity too, is driven by the drug trade. Um, this is a committee that has not only the Western Hemisphere as its jurisdiction, but transnational criminal activity. The drug trade is, is not coming to Honduras because Hondurans consume a lot of drugs. The drug trade is coming to Honduras because, Honduras because Americans consume a lot of drugs. It is, it is our consumption of drugs, whether it's heroin now raised cheaply in Mexico or whether it's cocaine, as you indicate, raised uh, in Peru. It's our consumption of drugs that has turned a, a nation that is a real ally of ours into a transit point. And the amount of cash that we're willing to spend for drugs basically just corrupts the institutions of a nation that has a 65% poverty rate. They have a responsibility to improve their own institutions but they have a real challenge of improving them to the degree that we might want to see uh, as long as U.S. dollars by, uh, driven by a U.S. demand for drugs is corrupting their institutions so badly. And so, you know, as, as I see in Virginia, whether it's, you know, opioid overdoses in rural Virginia or methamphetamine problems in, you know, other parts of the state, uh, and we see it all over the country, I mean, all over the country we're seeing this uh, drug problem, I unless we get a handle on the demand side here and do things really to fundamentally change the equation of the demand side here, you know, we can extradite more and more people, we can arrest more and more people, we can, you know, pay for trainings of police or security officers, but we will not see the outcomes that we want in Central America unless we own our own responsibilities. When, when kids from violent neighborhoods were 
arriving at our border and then surrendering to the first American they saw in uniform. And, you know, there was some attitude of kind of, you know, blaming the countries. But, I mean, to some degree, they're arriving on our doorstep because we're the source of some of the problems. So those nations have got to own responsibility for their institutional improvements. We got to own our responsibility. Um, and it is U.S. cash that is corrupting these countries, these poor countries, because of the demand for drugs. And we got to get a handle on that. Um, and there's no silver bullet answer to it, but we got to own that as a responsibility. Senator, I'll just very quickly, I could not agree more. I think that it is not in the State Department's bellywick, which tends to deal more with the law enforcement and supply side, but um, this administration, the Obama administration, has trebled the amount of money that we spend uh, out of, and, and my good friend Mike Botticelli, the director at ONDCP, has trebled that. Uh, this was, quite frankly, in diplomatic terms, sort of a watershed moment when President Obama and former Secretary Clinton told the countries of the region, we are co-responsible for this. And we agree, we do have to own it. It's not in our bailiwick or operational purview, but uh, we couldn't agree more with you. And it's one of the reasons why within that cooperation that we do with these countries, we include demand reduction because what we sadly see many times is the sort of the, 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 the curse of geography as the drugs move up through the isthmus. Uh, many times the drug traffickers who are, you know, pretty, pretty rapacious individuals will pay off in, in, in product and try to use supply to create their own demand. So I thank you very much for your support and recognition that in the United States we have our co-responsibility as well. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for being here with us today. It was a two-hour hearing, and I appreciate your patience, your service to our country. Uh, Ms. Bennett, it wasn't bad at all, was it? No? It was delightful. Thank Great. you. <laughs> the record is going to remain open until the close of business on Thursday, May 7th, and with that, the hearing's adjourned. <laughs>